Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm Rose, and I love a good science pun. But only periodically. Fortunately today, I'm joined by Robin Perkins. Robin is a charismatic comedian with a scientist brain. We had a chat about research, dating apps and decision making. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Robin. Hello. (laughs) To start off with, how would you explain what you do as a job? What do you actually do? So I I stand on stage and talk into a microphone and hope that people laugh. Uh, no, so as a comedy is my full time job, uh, and there are several different uh, avenues that I perform in. So I do comedy clubs and I do um, tour shows, so hour long shows, and the hour long shows that I do kind of combine science and comedy. And what was your science background in? So I, I I did a lot of degrees. Really? <laughs> so many degrees, so little income. Um, but yeah, my first degree was a, just a bachelor in science. And mm-hmm. so it was a focus in biology and marine biology. And then when I left there, I did two years of a master's in architecture. And then I left that and did uh, got a master's in landscape architecture. Wow. So That is a broad range. Yes. <laughs> when you're in school, like going right back, do you think you were someone who was interested in science? Yeah. I mean, I so I wanted to be a marine biologist from the age of five. Yeah. Like classic. everything, everything I did had to do with marine biology and not just like whales and dolphins like every other kid, but like... Off. We had like a we had a book report that we had to do on like an African country. So I chose like Cape Verde because it was the island, so I could somehow dabble into marine biology or like every animal report, like everything I could twist into marine biology. I did, and yeah, and then just did that my whole life. So um, started doing research programs in high school. So like in by 15 and then was doing uh internships at research labs all through university and and then just stopped (laughs) (laughs) before we get to the stopping and where the comedy comes in when you're at school did you live near the beach or something was that why marine became so interesting to you no i don't know why it was i I genuinely it was just from when i was when i was five and i think it did start by just a fascination with whales and dolphins and i've been on a swim team since i was five so i love swimming and that's of things but maybe it's because I wasn't near the beach that I always was fascinated by the ocean but you never went on to study marine I did so the plan was always to do an undergrad in biology to get a better background and then get a like my PhD in marine biology so I did um coral reef research when I was uh 17 in Grand Cayman and then did an internship at University of Florida working on the sense of smell in blue crabs. Wow. And yeah, I was. How uh, do they smell? <laughs> they, I mean, through their antennas. So yeah. we're, because the blue crab goes through different levels of salinity. And so we're basically adjusting them to see how the smell fluctuates um, huh. in different salinities. Yeah. How do you test that? You, okay. I <laughs> uh, This, by the way, was in uh, two. The summer of 2000. So it was a while ago. And I just want to say, I don't know if our practices are uh, ethical anymore. (laughs) So I just want to, I was instructed to do some things. Uh, Basically, you cut off the antenna of the blue crab and then cannulate the main artery to keep it alive with like a saline solution and then run food over the antenna and um, 
you hook up something up to the electrode. So the whole thing is done under a microscope, which wow. is uh, very hard to do because you're looking at like an artery that's less than a millimeter yeah. wide. Um, yeah. And then just test the response. Wow. That's a complicated way to figure that out. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Did you enjoy studying science at uni? Yeah, I mean, I did. Um, I think the the problem is, so I think after that, so the Blue Crabs was amazing. The next summer, I had an internship at Scripps where I was looking at dinoflagellates. And I think the more... Uh, so that one was looking at like um, red tides and the effect of UVB light on the heat shock oh. proteins and dinoflagellates, which was, again, interesting. But I think the closer I got to microbiology, um, I'm a very creative person and mm-hmm. I felt like the reason why I didn't stay in research was because I felt like I wasn't able to be creative because to get grants you were had to have a very good idea of where it was going before okay. you could apply and I just wanted to be more artistic in what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when I was looking at like the, you know, the Western blots being like, well, that's pretty. <laughs> and it's rather than that's useful. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to be more creative, I guess. Is that something you felt even when you were younger and really enjoyed marine biology? Did you still have that pull towards creativity or do you think that must have developed later in life? No, I think I, I always was creative and in my undergrad, because you could major in a number of different things, I was kind of torn between biology and I did a lot of uh, the courses in economics and then um, also was trying to get a degree in art and then my dad was like you can't work as an artist like you won't make any money so I didn't so it was very it was a lot of family influence to not go down the artistic route so when you incorporate science into your comedy do you feel like that's paying homage to your younger self (laughs) who wanted to be a scientist I, I love it because I, I still do love research. And even when I went into landscape architecture, I thought that was a really great cre- like merger of creativity and science because with landscape architecture and it was looking at like large scale projects. So one of the projects I worked on was like the Rio 2016 Olympic Park. And so you're looking at a lot of different layers that are going into that. So like the ecology of it and stormwater systems and drainage and thing and circulation patterns. So there's a lot of research as well and botany that goes into it. Yeah. And so that was a great way to combine the two. Um, with comedy, I think the thing is that I, like every scientist out there, uh, like we overanalyze everything <laughs> in our life, like yeah. everything, like whether it be an outfit or like your dating life or everything. So um, all the science that I do in comedy, it's not stuff that I've studied before. So uh, last year I did the neuroscience of decision making. This year I'm looking at love and dating and society. And uh, next year I'm looking at the relationship between confidence and comp- competitiveness. So all of the research that I'm doing I haven't studied before so it's all it's quite fun because I feel like I'm back reading scientific papers and talking to scientists and actually getting the data behind everything well that seems to be something that I've noticed is that although scientists sometimes have a specific interest area yeah science itself has promoted them to become really curious about other topics yes so maybe even though you you're not a researcher yourself, science maybe promoted your sense of wanting to find out more about other things. Yes, 100%. I am. I, like, all of my shows are 
are about a thing that I was curious about. Yeah. Right. And it's one of those things going, you know, they always say in comedy to write about what you know. And I write about what I don't know and then research it. And then. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. How do you research it? Where do you find information? So many different avenues. Scientific papers are a big one. I think uh, I actually, this probably sounds really lame to say, but uh, <laughs> I actually like starting with TED Talks um, yeah. because it's a very um, short, broad uh, summary of, and you get scientists and researchers giving short topics and then find those people and look into their research more. So it's a good way to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. But I have contacted and interviewed scientists that specialize in certain fields um, and just reading books and just a bunch of different avenues to the problem is is the topics that I'm covering are so huge you Mm. know and this is people's many different people's lifelong work and so to try to pull out a small amount of that to then condense it into a palatable format and then stick it within an hour-long show is also I don't have time I mean if I was going to do research on the neuroscience of love that's like more than a lifetime of work and so to try to condense that and explain it in a three-minute joke is hard (laughs) do you consider yourself a science communicator I think that's probably the best way to way to put it because I I don't I don't practice science I don't you know the research that I do is not I'm not I, it's it's weird I, yeah I having identity issues I don't know if I consider myself <laughs> a real scientist anymore because I'm not doing it but at the same time communicating and I do I do make sure everything I say is accurate there's um King's College in London I've done previews there uh, at their I have a friend that works in um uh, research in dementia and so she got a bunch of her brain scientists yeah. <laughs> to come down and I did a preview in front of them to make sure everything I was saying was factually accurate yeah is that a fear that you're going to say something <sighs> in a joke and it's going to be presenting then science incorrectly which is probably not what you want to do because yeah. you understand science <laughs> Massively. Yeah. The first preview that I did in front of them, um, I have a whole bit about the amygdala in the first joke. If you're like me and didn't know, the amygdala is an almond shaped part of your brain responsible for a lot things like emotions, fear, and mating selection. It's kind of near the top of your spine, right in the bottom middle of your brain. I'd gone through all the amygdala jokes and they were kind of quiet. At that point in time, and when you're on stage, you're thinking of anything but what's coming out of your mouth. And so it got really nervous. And then after the show, it's like, did you, you guys didn't laugh? Is it wrong? Like, is it inaccurate? <laughs> they were like, no, we loved it. We just take the amygdala very seriously. <laughs> oh, wow. So it is, it is nerve wracking. And actually, I did a preview for this show where I made a comment that says that um, animals, for the most part, don't play hard to get. And I had somebody email in and go, they do play hard to get. And we had this whole back and forth. And from what I've found, and again, I do not, I don't have a lifetime of research, but animals, I mean, 100% play games when they get together. Interesting. But hard to get is a very specific game that I think there's like a species of antelope that do it and one species of bird that kind of allude to it. But most animals like do not play hard to get. And I've, once that person wrote in, it was uh, turned into like a big debate. And then yeah. I've talked to more zoologists that I know that are like, well, I don't know any species that play hard to get, but at the same time. I Maybe mean, they do. Yeah, exactly. So um, it is one of the things that I've then tried to qualify by saying most animals 
even though I can't really find any evidence that they do. But it is a fear because I'm going up there. And obviously there are jokes that I make, you know, yes. about that are quite obviously not true, um, which is fine. <laughs> like, um, and people that know aren't true. Like, for example, uh, I don't know if this is, but I, when I'm talking about the amygdala and saying that they've done studies that some animals can live with amygdala, amygdala damage, it just means that they'll mate with anything. <laughs> so then saying like the highest percentage of animals living with amygdala damage are actually Aussies from Armadale. <laughs> yeah, so, which obviously is not true, but uh, <laughs> I feel like the audience can tell what's actually true and what's not. Yeah, it's dangerous, yeah. but it's yeah, true. It yeah. is, I know. In the process of writing a show, what does your life look like? Tell me. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, I usually perform probably six nights a week, wow. uh, except for festivals, which is every single night. And then uh, I do a combination of the boring admin side of stuff during the day and writing and how I write. Um, I have a blank wall in my flat and mm-hmm. I just have post-its on it. So the whole wall is like covered with post-its that wow. go through like the structure of the show and what I need to research and stuff like that. Um, so if anybody has doesn't know this about me, if they come to my flat, it looks like I'm looking to murder people. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when like you have, uh, like when you're writing jokes or something, like some of them is just like one word. And then, so they'll just be like a name with something you cross through it or like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of, I'll start off and I work on, um, I work on an Edinburgh Fringe schedule. So okay. I'm always working to complete a show by the Edinburgh Fringe, mm-hmm. which means that when I take shows to Perth, they are very done, which is <laughs> you guys get the best. Um, <laughs> well rehearsed. Yeah. But Peer it means reviewed. that. So in September, that's when I'm doing starting September to December is like a lot of heavy research. And then it's more taking that research and putting it into jokes like January to July. <laughs> Going back to the show you've done on decision making, mm-hmm. where did the inspiration for that come from? So I I am very indecisive. And <laughs> when I had been doing comedy for a while okay. and most of the comedy I was doing was just club comedy, just doing dick jokes. And uh, I had a friend of mine actually bought like the shell of a building for a comedy club in Liverpool in the UK. Wow. And uh, had me um, go up to Liverpool and for three days and just sketch out ideas for the club. And so over, we spent three or four days together. And by the end of it, and he's a promoter, it's one of the biggest clubs in the UK. And he was like, you know, um, no offense, but after spending three or four days with you, you were so much more interesting than your comedy would say. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is harsh, but really fair uh, because it wasn't. I mean, the things that I was doing, I mean, I had like dabbled in it. I had one joke that was, you know, like calculating like the speed of an ejaculation with like a train. It was <laughs> not like it, it like you could see it, but I had never written anything on it. And I before then, I hadn't done my first hour-long show yet. And I realized that actually, I think in science. When I go to write a bit for the first time, if I come up with an idea, I will research it immediately. And I always thought that was normal. Ah. You just like, yeah, find something funny. And then my instinct is to go, okay, well, why is that? What's the background behind it? Like, here's a stereotype that I think is funny. Let's look up the history before it. Is there a biological background to it? Yeah. And... So it took a few people to be like, that's not normal. Most people don't do that. And so started uh, writing on that and was working on a show that originally was going to be called Robin's Bad Decision Time because I figured I made bad decisions. And my brother-in-law 
had this moment where he's like, you don't make bad decisions. You don't make decisions. Oh. And the difference is you're just scared of committing to a decision. And so I started looking into why that is. And because there are two parts of your brain that go into decision making. So there's the prefrontal cortex, which is like the factual part of the brain that, you know, logical works on, you know, pros and cons. And then the amygdala, which is the emotional part of the brain. Okay. And the two work together and you can't make a decision without your amygdala. Um, But in fight or flight situations, your amygdala can take over and make the decision without your prefrontal cortex. Interesting. I would have assumed it would be the other way around. Well, the prefrontal cortex is part of the um, most developed. So the limbic, uh, the amygdala is part of the limbic system. No, your lizard brain. Oh, gosh, I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, (laughs) No, I'm pretty sure like the the amygdala is part of the original part of your brain. Okay. So it is in your instinctual responses and fight or flight that's where it thrives and the prefrontal cortex or is part of the humans have developed this yes so with that i have an issue trusting my amygdala mm. and trusting my emotions and so that is why i'm so indecisive and when i met yeah it was great when i i just basically found this woman uh this scientist in saturday i was like why and she was like you have a stressed out amygdala wow. and i was like oh all right and <laughs> so, can that be something anyone has or is yeah. yeah yes yeah and she actually she does amygdala coaching as well wow yeah <laughs> to help just so i in the show that i was doing um i would get anonymous decisions from the audience before the show started and people just write them on pieces of paper and put them in a bag and then I pick one out and instead of identifying who um, made that or ha- who had that decision uh, we would create the parameters like on stage so like one of them that I had was um, should I tell my girlfriend I killed her gerbil and so yeah. got through and we like asked the audience you know all the parameters like how long have we been together how old was the gerbil like where was she when this happened and uh, then we go through the prefrontal cortex and how the prefrontal cortex would make that decision in the different areas of the amygdala looking at um, emotion, mood and feeling and and then make a decision as a as an audience. A yeah. Working together as one yeah. big amygdala together, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> it's interesting that you said earlier that you don't think you're a scientist, but what you've just described is researching and you know using (laughs) science in your comedy does that make you maybe reevaluate maybe you are a scientist I guess so I mean I think this um the show that I've done about love actually has an experiment in it okay which is more like we take anonymous votes throughout the show and enter them live on stage into Excel. <laughs> a um, scientist's best friend, yes. <laughs> obviously. Also a science choice to choose to make an Excel spreadsheet oh, yes. during a comedy show. <laughs> so many Excel sheets <laughs> in my show. It's amazing. Um, so I guess in that, uh, but I would say that's more of a social experiment. I yeah. feel like there are a lot of biases that go into it because I'm telling, like, especially this year, I'm telling a story of what happens. And so how I'm telling the story is very much biasing the audience as to how they are voting. And so for that reason, I mean, that is an experiment looking at how my words can change how people vote. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I research, but I think, I think where I get so self-conscious about it is because I am grossly simplifying huge amounts of data to present it to people who, I mean, scientists 
love the show, okay. but then also to make it accessible to people who aren't in science yeah. as much. Yeah. Uh, as long as you have like a interest into why this is, then yeah. And so because I'm simplifying things, I feel like that's almost not offensive, but yeah. I, yeah do you know? I, yeah. I feel like I am. I can see what you mean. Yeah. But it's interesting because it's, they're definitely things that a scientist does are incorporated into a job that isn't seen as scientific. Do you think that people are more comfortable thinking about science and scientific topics when it's presented through comedy? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think any um, any topic is more comfortable when you're laughing because then yeah. you're laughing, your guard is down, so you're more receptive to things. And if you lecture somebody, and they're like, if they if they haven't chosen to be lectured on that topic, then they don't want to hear it. Yeah. So I think you can kind of sneak things in, and a lot of people who have come to the show going, oh wow, I learned something as well. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think people should care about the science behind some of these more human experiences? I think, especially with the mating selection show, I think one of the things that the show does is it pulls out inconsistencies that are um, that of our social constructs. And I think it's really important to challenge those and going, why is this okay? Like I'm not, like in one of them, it's talking about rejecting people romantically okay. in public. Right? And it's looking at, for example, uh, why is it not okay to reject somebody based on their body type, but it is okay to reject them based on their height. Yeah. And I'm not saying one or the other is right or like they both should be able to re be rejected or neither should, but I'm saying those are two things that it's inconsistent. And why do we have that in society? It really sounds like you've moved all across the world. <laughs> so where did you study your first part with the science? And then do you think maybe where you lived, has that moved because of what you've studied or the comedy that you've gotten into? How does that work? So I was raised in New Hampshire, then um, moved around a bit. So my uh, I moved to Boston for grad school and then lived there for a while, came, moved to London for a job just because I also wanted to um, live in Europe and just away from the States. Uh, but I did even it, like through the internships, I, you know, spent a summer in Florida, spent a summer in California and... Um, London, though, when I once I started comedy, is for a working comic who is not famous. Is I think the best place to make money or yeah. to make a living on it. Um, and then coming to Australia every year. I mean, Perth is my favorite festival to do <laughs> every year. It is because the audiences are so switched on as well. And so there's a there's a handful. I'd say probably about twenty UK comics that come over to Australia for Perth and Adelaide and Melbourne every year, maybe more so just for Melbourne, but um, to do the festival circuit. Are there many other comedians doing science? No. And, I mean, there is um, there is a, a group in London, but there aren't many. Um, I, I just had coffee with Steve Cross, who's one of the the biggest science comedians in the UK. Um, and, of course, Robin Ince as well, who is... Uh, my hero and but he, he was saying like uh probably 10 12 years ago 
they put out like a top five science comedians oh, wow. list in a magazine. And he was like, which was great that I made top five because there were only six. And <laughs> you're going, wow. And it's starting to grow. It is. And there are different, um, different levels. But I think it, yeah, it's something that I need to figure out how to reach my audience. That's yeah. something I'm not. That's a big challenge for me right now. Who do you think your audience is? I think my audience is like... 20 to 45 year old smart people yeah (laughs) because I also have while I talk about science and a lot of um there's a level of intelligence in my show it's equally I'm using my life stories to explain it and question it so when I'm talking about dating or I'm talking about indecisiveness and um a lot of it is my experiences that happen as I'm 38 years old so it's I mean I'm like a young 38 because I'm not married or have kids or have a (laughs) bank account or savings so I really have the success of like a 22 year old so I feel like in that range would be great (laughs) yeah interesting it's interesting that you say smart people Mm. do you think that is that offensive I I don't know I just think it's interesting because is that do you think reflective of you think science is maybe only interesting to a certain audience do you think it's the science that's pushing maybe it not to be for a broad, wider audience or do you think it's your style is there a reason why you broke it down i think it's people that like to think okay and people that like to know the why behind yeah. things and i think that's the big thing about it because i've also i've tried to do shows to um more of a club a comedy club audience yeah. that just wants jokes and they're like I don't I don't want to think about I don't want to have a bigger message behind a comedy show okay. I don't want to know the reason why I just want you to tell me whether or not you took home that guy yeah so I feel like the audiences that want to know why are the ones that appreciate the shows more yeah that's a good point sometimes you're just not there to learn yeah <laughs> exactly really exactly <laughs> but do you think people should care why yeah absolutely I think when we start to question why things are then we can start to change things that aren't fair or honest or right what do you wish people knew whether this be from something you've studied formally or maybe something you've researched for your shows what do you think if people knew it they'd just be better off I okay I think maybe in general I think I wish people would realize that you don't have to be a proper scientist to investigate something yeah I mean, that's what it is. I don't, because I don't have, my training is just, you know, like university and then I kind of moved on. I went maths, but it is, I would call myself an investigator. That's cool. I like yeah. that. An investigator. Science investigator. Yeah. <laughs> what has been the subject that you've come across whilst, I don't know, researching or maybe it's just been mentioned to you that you've been like, oh my goodness, I wish I could have known more than about that or like maybe wish you could have studied it further. Is there something that really like captured you at some point? I think I love neuroscience and um, the I kind of I keep having all these ideas for shows that I'm working on. And so I think the two things that I'm very interested in right now, one is uh, cognitive bias, which is the show after next year. But how I just find that fascinating how there are like 152 different ways that our brain perceives the truth other than what it is and how Ah. we're biased, which is incredible. Um, so that I am excited to look into more. And the other thing uh, that I'm really enjoying learning about more is I'm looking at like the science of competitiveness and 
how our mental state can have real physiological changes. What kinds effects. of changes? Well, okay. So if before a competition, if you're in the mindset of this is going to be a competition and you're mentally ready, that will increase your testosterone. And that, uh, because testosterone can pass over the blood-brain barrier, that actually speeds up your DNA transcription, creating more neurotransmitters, which what? gives you, like, a better performance. Wow. I know. I was like, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and another one is, um, I believe it's the playing to win versus playing not to lose. The difference is um, noradrenaline versus adrenaline. And so when you have a surge of adrenaline, uh, because it goes up your spinal cord for a very quick burst, it will dilate your blood vessels, giving, giving more oxygen to your muscles, whereas noradrenaline will constrict them. Um, and so that will decrease the amount of oxygen that you get to your muscles as well. Which one would cause more adrenaline, playing to win or playing uh, not playing to Playing to win versus playing yeah. not to lose. So ah, interesting. But again, it's I it's um it's scary when I talk about things like this because I'm I think that I'm understanding it like yeah. and I will and I but some people again saying something like that, it's I'm sure there is somebody who this is their life work going, Well, that's yeah. not exactly straightforward, but it is there's a lot of other factors that go into it and Yeah. Um like one of the things that is going to be very cagey to describe in next year's show is um, looking at the comp gene, which is a gene that they've linked to competitiveness. Okay. But it's basically the gene that um, removes in your prefrontal cortex, reabsorbs dopamine into your neurons. Oh, right? so when you're... So when you're in a stressful or any sort of competition, yeah. you'll get an influx of dopamine. Okay. And this gene basically creates the enzyme that reabsorbs dopamine and if you have too much dopamine in your brain if you have an overload then your brain shuts down and you can't make those factual logical decisions right and there's two types of the comp chain there's like the fast moving and the slow moving and so the people that have the fast moving comp gene, they're able to make more in stressful competitive situations make a rational decisions okay. more and so which tend to come off as riskier decisions oh. because they're based on fact rather than emotion and your amygdala yeah okay right? and the interesting thing about that is that uh estrogen which is present in more females binds to the comp gene and slows it down interesting and when i first started reading about this i was like are you what are you saying that <laughs> men are more competitive than women absolutely not <laughs> and i know that that has to do with your baseline levels of dopamine as well because okay. if you have higher baseline levels of dopamine then you're a fast acting like it, there's a lot of different factors that go into that so it's not that all men are more competitive than all women but it's saying that if you have two humans that have the same baseline level of dopamine if one of them has more estrogen, then they're going to have a slower acting comp gene. But equally, when you're not in stressful situations, then that can actually help you. And then if you're able to manage like stress, if, yeah, so there's so many different factors. But it's interesting that you could simplifying in one situation going, well, if somebody makes riskier decisions, uh, that makes them appear to be more confident because they're putting themselves into competitions oh, where uh, other people wouldn't and that 
could be proving why men are egotistical. Yeah, right. Take more risks, perhaps. <laughs> you go in science, right? <laughs> uh, there are just so many factors in it that you're like, you can't say that. <laughs> so, it does make it stressful. Yeah, and it's interesting the idea that. I mean, you look at people who are competitive, perhaps, mm-hmm. and you say, oh, that's just a competitive person, but it just goes to show how sometimes there's more layers further yeah. back from that. Yes, exactly. You're very interested in people. Did you ever consider yeah. doing psychology? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I probably would have done really well with that, actually. Yeah. I think I also have a very short attention span, though, uh, and so I think with comedy I can kind of, like, move on to the next mm-hmm. thing, so I can do a million things at once. But I feel like if I was going to go into psychology, that's, again, a lot of school and a lot of the <laughs> other stuff that... <laughs> Is that what's quite unappealing? No, well, it's not school because yeah. I love the learning. I think it's the repetition. Like, um, so when I was doing my thesis, my thesis was looking at the effect of UVB light on HSP70 in the diatom. Uh, You're going to have to explain Nana. to me what that is. I know. All right. So heat shock proteins are a type of protein that comes out if uh, you're stressed. Okay. And so we're basically, um, the research was trying to look at uh, why red tides exist and how they exist in- Red tides? Red tides. So um, maybe this is a thing in the west in coast the, of the state sport. Yeah. Um, you'll have like algal blooms. Okay. And some of them are made up of diatoms or dinoflagellates that are red. So all of a sudden they will oh. massively populate okay. and just like- uh, suffocate. They won't let light down to the lower levels, so it has a yes. lot of negative uh, impact there. And are then they also, red? some of them are. Oh. Yeah, which is where they got the name. But also, if you look at like oysters and clams that are filtering that much water, they will get a high concentration of it, which is toxic. And then their bodies are made to absorb that, or fine to absorb that. But then, mm. if you have birds and stuff that are eating the oysters, yes. they will then get sick and die because there's such a high concentration of it if they eat a number of oysters. Uh, which is why some people get sick off of oysters and clams oh. and stuff. So I was doing this research and I got yeah. really good results. And they were like, okay, you just need to do it all over again. <laughs> and then you can be like, first name on your paper. And I was like, all right, because I'm like about to graduate from university. So it's like pretty young to be first name on a paper. And I was yeah. like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Like, I, <laughs> don't just, I don't want to do it. And I remember I was just going through this like crisis of what I'm going to do in my life. And were like really is the thought of doing just two more weeks in a lab that bad and I was like yeah I don't want to do it like I'm done <laughs> and which is horrible <laughs> but I just you can't help it when I'm done I'm do done it, yeah. like yeah if you don't want to do it you don't want to do it yep even if it's just on a personal level what do you see the connection being between science and art I think that there's um a huge overlap I don't think they are necessarily two opposite things um and i think the biggest connection between them is problem solving mm-hmm. and thinking like when so the art that i love the most is um art that has a greater meaning and art that makes you think and um challenges you and so when you're problem solving whether it be for an art or a performance or writing or again in science is a more i think literal take on problem solving but it's that analytical thought process of creating and solving and challenging and giving weight to your thoughts I suppose like in science if you have a thought you test it out in art maybe you have a thought and then you explore it in different ways 
Yeah, that's a much better way to put it. <laughs> it was a bit of teamwork. Yeah, there, to no, it was. It's good. Um, it is. I, and that's what I love about both of them is, um, and I am quite literally combining both of them, but yeah, having a thought and exploring it. Is, is all part of it. Yeah, exactly. This is arguably my favorite thing to ask. What is your favorite kind of fun fact or go-to, like, cute little science fact you like to tell people? So I'm pretty obsessed with the amygdala. Yeah. And I think that the amygdala is the most underrated uh, part of your body. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, in the decision-making show, I decided to uh, stand up for the amygdala and I made a series of stickers. Um, And because other parts of the body get credit, right? So Mm -hmm. you have, like, the heart which gets credit for love. Yeah. It's obviously crap, yeah. right? You know, like the ventricle has nothing to do with love. Yeah. Right? And it also does your fear, which is like your bowels have nothing, you know, like get yeah. credit for that, you know? And like your your sex drive is also your amygdala. It's responsible so, for so many things. I know, right? So my, my four stickers, one of them says, I love you with all of my amygdala. Aww. <laughs> yeah, one of them says, uh, you scared the amygdala out of me. That's great. Yeah, one of them is, I wear my amygdala on my sleeve. Oh. One of them is, uh, you are so thinking with your amygdala that's great that's like a science fact and a science joke in one i like that one nice that's really good (laughs) do you see yourself doing comedy and science comedy forever i think so but i feel like your goals and your dreams should be constantly changing and if they're not if i'm gonna have the same goals today as i do in 20 years that means i'm not really developing as a person so Right now, I think, yeah, I think it's infinitely challenging. There are an infinite amount of questions that I can ask and answer with comedy and research, but I can't promise anything. (laughs) What's on your list to continue researching? Yeah, cognitive bias is definitely next. Um, Competitiveness and confidence is in there. And I don't really know after that. Something will come up. Yeah, something's going to make you excited. Yeah. (laughs) Well, good luck and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Particle Podcast. Check out more of our content on all the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. As always, this episode was recorded in the wonderful science hub that is Western Australia and Particle is powered by SciTech.